Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yordana Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf Yudbet, page 12. So our daf is continuing with our daf, the Gemara is continuing with long dafim, long pages, where we're going to pull out snippets, which are, you know, interesting in their characterization of what's going on. Still, we're in the first parak, or the Gemara is following the first parak of the first chapter of, Meg- of the Megillah, of Megillah Tester. And we have here a discussion of the king's feast. Now, I'll remind you all that the text of the Megillah is very descriptive, elaborate, ornate. You know, in talking about the setting of Achishverosh's palace, the fabrics, and it's lush, and it's um, very indulgent and, um, you know, I said elaborate, right? It's a very, it's a very indulgent um, and rich kind of feast. Chel parasumadai hapartamim. So the Megillah, Megillah begins with, or it's not the the Gemara's interpretation of this section of the Megillah uh, begins with the guests. The guests is the army of Paras Umadai. Now we translate Paras Umadai to be Persia and Medea. And then it says, you know, Hapartamim, these are the nobles or the princes or whatever kind of title you want to give them for coming from the various provinces. Right, because again, we talked about the 127 provinces of King Achishverosh's realm. But it says also um, at the end of the Megillah, right? It talks about that the whole story is written in the chronicles of the kings of Madayu Paras. Meaning, the Gemara is going to ask at the beginning. It says Parasu Madai. At the end, it says Madayu Paras. What's going on here, right? Amarava atnuye atnuye bahadade. So Rava says that both of these people, the Persians and the Medes or the Medeans, uh, stipulated, they, they organized together, they made a condition with each other. If They made a deal that if the kings will come from us, then the ministers will come from you. And if the ministers come from us, then the kings will come from you. Meaning that they would switch off who is going to have which role again in their in their visiting of Achishverosh, right? Meaning Achishverosh is the emperor empire, or he's the emperor of this vast empire, and then Parasumadai are the the local dignitaries and nobles who had come in, which is kind of interesting when we think of you know Persia is in Achishverosh, ancient Persia, and the answer is sure, but it's a different kind of thing than this particular um, or, uh, country or or province that's named that's named Paras. So they it's you know they were in cahoots, so to speak, and that's why, according to the Gemara, that's why the verses switch Paras Madai to Madai Paras. The Gemara goes on. So it's the Megillah says that he, Achashverosh, showed the riches of Kavod Machuto, of the honor of his kingdom. He he showed it off, right? That they were wearing, that Achashverosh himself was wearing the big day kahuna, the, the clothing that the Kohanim would wear in the Beit HaMikdash. He himself was wearing them in this glorious kind of way because Kavod and Malchut uh, apparently is here understood to, uh, to be, you know, referring to the big day kahuna. Ktiv Hacha, because we've got a textual similarity, Yekar Teferet Gedulato. Meaning we've got Tiferet in both places, 
meaning both in the book of Exodus, when we're talking about the big day kahuna, and also here, so Tiferet and Tiferet, when we're talking about some kind of, of showing off of honor and glory, it lines up very nicely. We can understand that Achashverosh was wearing the big day kahuna. But the point of making this uh, inference and descriptions, I do believe, is to point fingers at Achashverosh as, a, as an indication of depravity. Meaning, how could it possibly be that this king, who who's the conquering king, really, right? He's the emperor. How can he be wearing the big dekuna? That is warped. That is depraved. That is just how low he sunk to take something that was so holy and wear it, lo and behold, at a human feast. Um, the Gemara goes on. I just want to jump a bit and say just one, um, one more little piece where it says, Shalut tell me David Ribbon Shimon Bar Yochai. So if you look there, it's, uh, it's skipping just a very small amount. So what happens? They, the students ask Rosh Yochai, why is it that the enemies of the Jewish people, which is understood to really mean B'nai Israel themselves, meaning like when they're not being at their best behavior. The haters of Israel who are B'nai Israel who are misbehaving, that in that same generation, they were deserving of klaya, of being annihilated, meaning the decree went out against them, right? So, so how could it be that they were that they that that was that that was fair, that that was just? And of course, this is a question, and we've mentioned this kind of thing before. This is a question of theodicy. How could it be that B'nai, that there was a decree against Bnei Israel, not from Haman's perspective or Achashverosh's perspective, but from our relationship with God, from Bnei Israel's relationship with God? How could it be that there would ever be a decree of annihilation? Amar lahem imru atem. So he says to them, you know, ask this question of yourselves. You know, uh, you, anybody can ask. Anybody can understand how it could be that people could do the wrong thing. So they answer him. They they answer him with a drusha, with an explication of the same text. They they had benefit. They enjoyed the feasts of, quote, otorasha. Now, otorasha sometimes means somebody else who's known to be, you know, the father of a different religion. But in this case, the shot of it is that they're talking about Achashverosh. They went to his feast. The implication, of course, is if you go to the emperor's non-Jewish feast and there's a good amount of gluttony going on, which is certainly described, then presumably they also maybe didn't eat kosher either, right? Like, it's not just that they had to show face, it's that they were there to partake and to enjoy, and that goes against the Torah. So then the students are still asking, uh, Reb Shimon, this, they've made this point. Reb Shimon Bar Yochai answers and says, that makes sense. You know, the, the, the partake of the feast makes sense if the people in Shushan, if the Jews in Shushan had been killed, right, as a punishment. But then why would there be, be a decree against all of the Jews in all of the Medinot, right, of, of the land of Achashverosh, of the emperor of Achashverosh? Amrulo, um, so they say back to the students, Amor Atta, so now you tell us. Amar lahem mipnei shehishtachavu letzelem. It says, because they bow down to an idol. What idol? The idol, not of Achashverosh, but this brings us back to the previous star. They, they bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made, 
that said that everybody, right, the whole world bowed down to it, except for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which is a very famous story of how they refused to bow down, right? But th- that means the implication is if they didn't, and they were the only ones who didn't, that everybody else did. And that seems to be reason enough for the Purim story to come as a, pre- a punishment against them. I think about goes on to talk about this a little bit further. The same discussion of Rishimbo Yachai and his students go on to, you know, address what's really deserved. You know, is is that really fair? Um, because it, it seems it seems not so fair that there should be a decree against Bnei Israel in the Jews of Shushan and the whole world of Achashverosh's empire because of something that took place in a previous generation. Yeah, I you know I hear that, and it's interesting how they sort of want to link the story to something else that happens. I mean, that's really not evident in the text itself. And I'm just struck by this whole dap and the next dap that it's essentially going line by line, pasuk by pasuk, and just giving like midrashic interpretations of all these different psukim. Um, and I have a theory. Do you want to hear uh, my theory? Yes, I want to hear your theory because I think it's interesting that they do this before they finish the halachic piece. What's your theory? I'd have to check it. It's a theory without, I have not yet substantiated it fully, but I feel like because of the opening of Megillat Esther is so, so, so not Jewish, right? There's nothing Jewish about it and until quite a ways in. I feel like this is the part that they are darshaning, that they are explicating with, with Jewish content, meaning don't think that these that this is about some non-Jewish king who had some non-Jewish empire that had nothing to do with us. Every verse here, every word is indicative of something Jewish. Jewish, Torah, Kadosh, whatever. All right. I like that theory. Um, well, let's see how we continue with that. So I'm going to do and read here a very famous part, which is about Vashti. Right. So it talks about how Vashti made, uh, you know, this Mishta for the woman in the house. And this is a pasuk from Megillah um, Esther, chapter one, verse nine. Um, and now the Gemara wants to, um, you know, talk a little bit about this. I'm a rabbi, shnei So Rabbi says basically both, meaning Achazverj and Vashti intended to do immoral acts, right? That both of them, uh, you know, these, these were not going to be a mishta filled with nice activities, right? right? And then they say, so goes, you know, sort of the popular phrase, right? He with large pumpkins, right? And his wife, Bivotsine, uh, with small pumpkins, meaning evil man and his wife will both, you know, sort of do the same behaviors. Then they go on the next pasuk, right? On the seventh day when the king's heart was merry with wine. Um, and this is verse 10. They're literally just going in order. Now, I actually think you are totally right here, Anne. Like, this section actually proves some of your point. So the Gemara basically says, wasn't his heart, was his heart not married with wine until now? Like, why specify the seventh day? This seventh day was Shabbat, right? And now what they want to do is basically compare and contrast the behavior of Jews with the behavior of non-Jews. For when Jews eat and drink, they always begin by discussing words of Torah and praise for God. But, you know, idolaters, right, when they eat and drink, they only think about indecent things, 
or talk about indecent things. And so too at the feast of this wicked one, meaning they would say that the Median women are beautiful, then the other ones would say, no, the Persian women are most beautiful. So in other words, the idea is they weren't talking nicely. So he says, the vessel that I use, I mean, think about what a demeaning way that is to talk about his wife, right? Is neither Median nor Persian, but Chaldean. And basically saying, she's the most beautiful woman. Do you want to see her? Right? And so they say to her, it's him, yes. Provided that she, of course, will be naked. And so I think they really sort of create here, the you know, Rav at least, sort of this backstory. And again, I'm reading this piece of Bachi because many of these things are familiar to us, but not necessarily the source, right? These are the kind of things we learned as little kids in school, right? But really, I think trying to, you know, when you read it just in the Pasuk itself, it's one thing, but really trying to sort of bring out the coarseness of this entire episode. And so then the Gemara goes on to say, why didn't she want to appear naked? And specifically, why in Shabbat? For with the measure that a man measures, meaning we're talking about what happens in Shemaya, Shemayim, like when you get judged finally, right? It's measured out to him. In other words, the way that you deal with others is the way God's ultimately going to deal with you. Right, it teaches us that the Vashti, right, who was wicked, which describes as Rasha, would bring Jewish girls, and strip them naked and make them work on Shabbat. And so, therefore, basically, what happens to her is a punishment. Right, so basically. He remembers later on, right? In other words, Be'at Asher Asta, right? What she had done. What is it that she did, right? And so what it's saying is, is that she did is, is that she did something bad, right? Refuses then to appear before Achashverosh, but she actually gets punished because of the bad thing that she did, right? So it finally says, Asta, kach Just as she had done to the, to the Jewish, these Jewish women, so too was also decreed upon her. Then the Gemara goes on, this is verse 12, chapter one, Vashti refuses, right? So then the Gemara would say, wait, but she was, she was like, not, uh, she was, you know, I guess like a lewd woman. Right? Because we said before, both of them intended to act immorally. So the question is, why wouldn't she come out naked? This seems uncharacteristic of who she is. My time alone, why didn't she come? So this is a very, very famous uh, Gemara, right? That she broke out in leprosy, right? And so therefore she didn't actually want to, uh, she didn't actually want to come out in that way. Now, it's interesting is that uh, Rashi and Tosas actually bring a Yerushalmi uh, that talks about this concept of the nigzar, like what was decreed upon her, right? We've read this pasuk before, right? Right, that Achashvera made this gezer on her, right? That, you know, she was going to be killed basically because she refused to come in front, you know, in front of her, in front of him. And there's also the word nigzar that appears in Divra Hayamim 
the second deeper Rebbe in chapter 26, verse 21, where it's talking about Uziah the king, that he also had Sarat, he had leprosy on the day of his death. And it also says it was Nigzar, was decreed upon here. So since Nigzar appears in all of these verses, that's how they sort of make the link. So I think it's interesting because this is always one of those Gemars where like, where do they get to this at all? Right. And why specifically would they want her to have Saraz? Um, and then finally, Tani and Abraisa, we have a different reason. Va Gabriel Vasa La Zanav, right? That the angel Gabriel came and made her, which typically sort of translated as a, uh, a Zanav as being some type of tail. Um, but some of them refer to him say it's some type of appendage or something like that. Um, and then finally, you know, they go to the next verse by Ode, right? The king becomes very upset, uh, upset with her refusal, um, you know, uh, uh, to sort of to come. Um, and then, you know, it says, Hi, right? Why was he so angry? Because Vashti sent the message. You're the stable boy of my father. And her father is supposed to be Belshazzar, who we talked about yesterday. Right, my father drank wine with the equivalent of what a thousand people drink and didn't get drunk. And whereas that man, meaning you, you became foolish just with your wine, right? So basically, she insults him. Immediately, he's very, very angry with her and then punishes her. So, you know, I don't have good answers or full good explanations. Again, this is the DAP. I don't have as much time to spend on it. You know, what is this thing about the Tsaras, which is, you know, most kids learn it as she had spots, right? And the whole idea that she, you know, grew a tail, you know, I, I, that I, I think what they're trying to say is that there was something that, you know, th- what they're trying to contrast here is here you have Vashti, on the one hand, they want to describe as sort of being immoral. And so therefore, of course, she should have been happy to parade around naked. But at the same time, I think they're trying to make it that there's a physical piece that made her self-conscious that she was not willing to do it. So I have another theory, um, meaning having spent some time on this this whole discussion and these sources, besides the DAF, I would not have been able to come up with this just just for today's preparation. Um, but I would say that, right, we've seen the, the beginning sources that you read in terms of, right, she's, there's a certain measure of outrage. And we saw this, I think, back in Masechah Shabbat, right? That there's, the the story is told there also how Vashti was requested to come and she was requested to come naked and she was indignant and she was outraged. And so there's a stream of interpretation of the Vashti story that has her being kind of almost righteous, right? Which is not what's being here, right? And then, and 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 it's painting Ahasuerus very poorly. But then here, right, if you want to say, the Vashti herself was wicked, then she can't be indignant that she's been asked to come out naked because, because that seems like the right kind of reaction to being asked to parade herself in that way, right? So then she has to not come out. So what would get her to not come out? Only if she looked ugly. So that's where we get Sarat, which is an ugly thing, or a tail could be a very ugly thing. And I would say that even Sarat is simply an ugly thing, but both of them, and the tail in particular, you've got the mention of, of Gabrielle, the Malach, is this supernatural intervention that prevents her from coming out. Because had she come out, then presumably there would have been no problem with Vashti and there would be no need to find a new queen and then there would be no Esther in place for the story of Purim. So the supernatural, Chazal bringing in the supernatural, meaning God's malach assisting there, 
to make sure that everything happens the way it has to happen because she wasn't going to come out. Yeah, I, I think, all right. Because like uh, she would have come out. She would have come out. I'm sorry, I said it backwards. She had to be prevented from coming out so that he could get mad at her so that he could Right, so he get mad at her. Right. In other words, I think, right, I think as particularly the detail with Gabrielle is that the, the Chazal is trying to say this was all planned, right? Like, in other words, this wasn't just an interaction between a king and a queen and then he had to find another queen. There's a supernatural, all of this is, you know, divine will from God. And I'll take this even further, which is, you know, what's interesting about this particular book is that there's no mention of God's name explicitly. So through the, the, the you know, exegesis that they do here, they almost have to bring the way you said, Anne, before they need to bring something Jewish into it. They need to bring God into it. And so they do that, you know, clearly with this, you know, with the idea of Gabriel coming. I well, think that it's that exactly. I think it's that exactly. Meaning I think that because were bothered by the absence of God in the Megillah. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink is reviews on our major podcast. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Time with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.